Sharp Pine Society is brought to you by Ever Proven CrossFit, 50 Crosby Road, Dover, New Hampshire. Give us a call at 603-740-0822 or contact the box manager at stone at E-V-R-P-R-V-N. No vowels except for the first one, dot com. Uh, also brought to you by Port City Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You can locate them on the web at portcitybjj.com. They are located at 8 Greenleaf Woods in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, right inside the Seacoast Sports Club, uh, right next to the racquetball courts. It's actually in a racquetball court. Uh, sometimes you hear those guys grunting and groaning next door, but that's besides the point. Reach them at portcitybjj at gmail.com. Also brought to you by Recall Athletics. Website coming soon that will house workouts, consisting primarily CrossFit moves to help your BJJ, your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It'll help you choke people out a little bit better. Here's the podcast. Was he also uh, Casey Jones in the Ninja Turtles movie? No, totally different person. Are you sure? I, I know, I know who you're talking about. But it's a totally different person. Oh, what else was that guy in? Uh, a lot of things. I think he was in Prophecy. He was in something recently too, where he played like a real bad guy. Yeah, I've seen him a couple like like douchey roles. Uh, <laughs> and I think there was they, some other dude who kind of looks like him too. I, I, I'm blanking on who it was. Yeah. Well, thank you all for joining our conversation <laughs> into Sharp Art Society. We we're trying to figure out what actors look like me, apparently. Um, number 20. Yeehaw. We're here. And we're sitting down with our guest today, uh, James Naronha, or Jimmy. I'm never going to call you Jimmy. Yeah, it was a good James. I didn't start the Jimmy thing here. <laughs> um, so uh, my backstory with James is like he's been coming to uh, the CrossFit gym for <clears throat> uh, over a year now, right? Yeah, closely. Yeah, just about a year and a half now. Yeah, he he kind of just like snuck in and just started like working out and and very quietly like doing stuff, and then I started noticing him as just like. He, like he puts a like so much effort into every single workout, and I've never seen the kid just slack off. So, um, and and I think we've had this like growing relationship where we say like we're under we're, we have this common understanding, or or it's one of those uh, unsaid things where we have an understanding where it's just like we constantly fuck with each other. <laughs> <laughs> or more so it's me fucking with him because i know that like he's like we have that that uh that relationship it's been a it's been a learning experience to know how demented we can get with each other and still be accepted yeah pretty, <laughs> pretty much we're constantly testing the boundaries as far as like um uh how many fucked up things we can send to each other <laughs> on a daily basis we're about as 
we've escalated about as much as possible. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> um, but on top of that has been getting to know him and uh, th- like like I was telling Derek on the way over, like you're you're like an onion. There's there's a lot to you. Um, and, and there's a lot unsaid. So, and I just found out something like right before the podcast. (laughs) So we'll, uh, I guess we'll start off with, um, New Hampshire native. Yep. I was born here and, uh, stayed here through high school. Uh, I was gone for about 10 years and moved back right about the same time I joined your gym a year and a half ago. Okay. So it's interesting because I grew up here and I understand the place, but um, coming back here has been very, very different. Okay. Want to elaborate on that? Well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to give the uh, the um, cliffhanger, like, <laughs> all big book here all I, all I can. So, yeah, the I went to school in New York and then out to Hawaii with the Marines. Okay. And between there and... Yeah, really, with the Marines, I was uh, training in Virginia, based in Hawaii, a deployment throughout the Pacific, one in Afghanistan, and then I spent a year in the Middle East after that. So those are all much more, um, you could say chaotic. There's a lot more changing and moving there yeah. than New England. So you uh, you started off going to, to college after, or university after after high school? Yep. Okay. Where'd you go? I was Cornell. So Cornell? Okay. Yep. Uh, a little ways from home. It's about middle of New York. So it was, it, that was a good distance, enough to start pushing my limits away from home, and then it just kept going from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess it pushed you so far to join the Marines? Well, actually, I didn't really know much about the military, as no one does in high school. Um, I was at Oyster River, which is a bit of a hippie paradise. <laughs> <laughs> and... I remember talking to, bouncing the ideas off joining the military, and one of my best friends was going to West Point. His father, his uncle, I think his grandfather went to West Point. So from the time uh, we started playing sports freshman year uh, in high school, he was adamant, I'm going to West Point. So that kind of put the bug in my ear of, that's, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so I started getting the a feel for the different branches, um, and I was scoping out the Navy, the Army. Whenever I mentioned the Marines, people said, no, no, the Marines are weird. Why would you do that? <laughs> so I pretty much ruled it out because I didn't know that I shouldn't listen to these hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, when I applied to college, I was planning on doing Army ROTC. I just wasn't that big on the ocean. Yeah. So I figured Army, there's kind of plenty of cool things to do. It's relatively normal. And as I was going to college... I called up the Army ROTC program, and this is almost everyone who's joined the Marines or something odd like the SEALs or the Rangers has a story where just little circumstances changed their whole track. Uh, So I called up the guy in the Army ROTC program, asked what they were doing to ramp up for the school year, and he said, yeah, we'll just come in and meet the guys, and we'll get to know you, and it'll be okay. It'll be great. And it was pretty... Pretty weak response. I called the Navy guy, and he says, yes, we have this training program. Uh, You'll learn the fundamentals of naval discipline. It's a one-week program. It'll be a bit like a mini boot camp. You'll learn sailing. I'm like, that sounds cool. The guy just had it together. So because that one guy had it together, 
I was like, I'll do Navy. Right. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in the Navy. And then when I got there, the uh, all the ideas in the Navy, being on a boat or a sub, not bad, but the Marines were, uh, they were a lot more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and the Navy had, the, there's, there's a bit of aristocracy in the Navy. It's part of the idea that you're not fighting as individuals, the ship is fighting. So there has to be total aristocratic command. That captain is like the lord of the ship. Yeah. Uh, which it does need to be that way, and I understand it. But you have the, the Navy officer's wardroom where the enlisted uh, bring, you your, your, bring you your food. And one of the Marines the, my first week there explained to me, you can do that. You can be in a wardroom, have your eggs the way you like them. And or you could be in the field with the Marines where you're both face down in the dirt eating the same stuff. It's going to suck, but that's how it works. I'm like, that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a little bit more of a of, of a sadist in you than 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 a prima donna, you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> If I were just by myself, I'd be the one slow cooking my eggs in the morning and like going all gourmet. But when you're trying to build a team and earn respect, I, you don't want to be that guy. Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, like kind of, kind of put it in the pieces for me. Um, as far as like. So you went to Cornell and then you joined the Marines. Does that mean that you joined as an officer or does that mean you like, I'm still trying to like learn about like the, all the inner workings of the military and like what means what. And so, uh, so you joined as an officer. Yes. There's so many different tracks to get there. Okay. So, and mine was even more convoluted than normal because I switched in freshman year from Navy to Marine track. Um, The, so during the summers, as soon as I signed up for that, uh, you do a bit of training. And uh, between sophomore and junior year, I went to uh, a training camp in the Sierra Nevada, the Mountain Warfare School. And between junior and summer, junior and senior summer, I went to Quantico, where they have the screening school. It's called OCS, Officer Candidate School. Uh, you don't learn anything there. It's really just a proving, proving ground of of uh, gotcha. seeing if you can do it. Uh, and it's pretty, it's not that physically difficult. It just sucks. And they mess with you and you have to be able to take it. Uh, it's the things they teach you to do there aren't things you should actually ever do as an officer. <laughs> uh, they basically want to see that you can take the misery, you can do what you're told and make other people do what they're told. Gotcha. Which is, so it's very elementary and they just want to see if you have the potential. And even people that sucked at it, and honestly, I sucked at it. I didn't like that mentality, and people knew it, and I knew it. But as long as they know that you've got the fundamentals uh, of just being able to gut through things and know that you're right when you're right, um, but still do what you have to do, if they see that, even if you're sucking, they'll pass you. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit of an emotional emotional mental beatdown. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything any particular like moment where you're like like 
just saying to yourself, like, what the hell is going on right now? Yes. Well, <laughs> here's the thing, and I'm going to get into um, country stereotypes here. The <laughs> Southerners did great at this because it's not a it's not a high thought place. It's can you just can you do it? Um, well, it is the Marines, right? But I was actually lucky in my career. I was around a lot of New Englanders. And we're a lot better at, or we think a lot. We take a lot more time thinking. Mm. Uh, and it was really interesting. My The final, the three major schools I went through was the, this candidate school, a general officer school called uh, the basic officer course, uh, and then the, an infantry school, IOC, officers, infantry officers course. Uh, the third one I had, it was all guys from New England in my team. One was from Southie, so he was a bit like a Southerner that way. Uh, the there was one who had just finished a PhD at is he at Cambridge or Oxford? Brilliant guy, but he took his time. Whenever he got an order, it wasn't just I'm going to go do it. It was let me think about this. How is what's the outcome of this attack going to be? Uh, and he's doing great now, but getting him getting through that school, it was painful to watch. <laughs> Just overthinking everything. Yes. And I was in the middle. I I overthought some things. But uh so that first school. So there's basically those those three schools you go through in the Marines. The screening school, uh the uh, basic officers course, and then your specialty school. So the basic officers course, which is the next one, is quite uh in depth and intelligent. They're teaching you so all Marine officers go through this, whether you're going to be on the ground as a grunt, uh, shooting artillery, or even a pilot or a lawyer. It's a six-month school, and the rest of the military doesn't have this. It's just the Marines. It's part of our program to have, or part of our ethos to have the whole corps combined in one effort, which is centered around the infantry, uh, centered around supporting the infantry. So everyone goes through this, and you actually only get your specialty at the end of it. So everyone's trying to prove that they're good at the thing that they're trying to get their specialty for. And so you learn your basics, you learn everybody else's basics, which is very helpful to know later on in the, in the, in the fleet. And it's yeah. pretty professional. It's, uh, you have time to think. You're not urged to make snap decisions that are stupid. And uh, it's a well-cultured time. You have, so it's co-ed, of course. You have... Um, your female officers there, uh, everybody else. And the next school, after you get your assignment, so I selected infantry, which is, in the Marine Corps, is harder to get than you would think. In the Army, getting general infantry is not a desired thing. People people want to get rangers or like a special branch of the Army combat field, but general infantry, not so much. Um... There are great people in it, but some people would view it as a um, kind of a catch-all. Yeah, what, what makes it so hard to get into infantry in the Marines? Because we're all messed up and we all want to just get in the front and kill stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess that means that. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, you're trying to join infantry? Yes. Okay. And I got lucky. They There's a convoluted... Um, they call it a, a talent spread, where 
they rank you from, so let's say your class is 300. They rank you from one to 300. And then each, where you rank in your third is where your rank, is where your priority of getting your assignment falls. So if your rank is 99, or I'm doing, I'll, math's a little annoying here. If you're number 99, you're at the bottom of the barrel. Even though you're in the top third, you basically get virtually your last pick. If you're number 102 or 202, you get whatever you want. The idea of that is you don't want any part of the Marine Corps, which is your leper colony. You don't want, take communications to be something that everyone knows. Oh, communications is lame. I don't want that. And you get the bottom of, your, of the barrel there. Yeah. Because you've got to have some people to progress up the ranks in that area. And it's got to be competent. Every part of the machine needs to work. Makes sense. I was like, my, my first thought was like, oh, that's fucked up. And then when you say it like that, I'm like, oh. Yeah, it is. Up. It's yeah. not fair. Right. Uh, and there's people that try to game the system. They know that they're 99th. They know if they bomb a test or just piss somebody off that they're going to get in a better selection mode. Right, and they right. tell you not to do that. That's not the point. And they don't want you. They want some good people in the unfun parts like motor transportation and bulk fuel because <laughs> as lame as as lame as those sound like i want my fuel when i need well, it's it all, I, it's all important right um so i was at the bottom of my third i was like 20 percent from the top i think so i was the last person in my third to get infantry and i was absolutely thrilled and there is a bit of after they select it, it's not just computerized. They do check and make sure this guy's a pansy. He's not going to cut it here. We'll put him over and we'll put him over somewhere else. They right. they check to make sure it it passes the sniff test. Right. Um, and the infantry school is a huge change. All the professional courtesies of things in the general military that are clean and polished and presentable. Those, uh, those are those do run through, but under the surface, the combat branches are beautifully demented. <laughs> <laughs> so my first day, my first day in orientation in the infantry officers' course, my, the captain walks in. Uh, he's got an uh, empty cup in one hand, and he's got a gigantic, big lip in, a uh, big lip of Copenhagen. Walks through the room. We're all just sitting there. We haven't, they haven't said a word to us. And, and there's some power games, too. We had to walk into the building through the back door. Until we graduate, we could never walk into the infantry officer's course building in the front door. And he walks around for about a minute, just stares at us, spits a dip, and says, most important rule of IOC is, spits another dip, don't be a fucking pussy. <laughs> <laughs> And walks out. <laughs> and then we sit there for five minutes before anybody else walks in. We're like, is that the entire orientation <laughs> to the infantry? And that was, that was the main point. And it was reiterated so many times um, that the most important thing you can do is man up when it comes to it. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and because there were so, there were so many times, too, that... You're in a field op, you're tired, you've just hiked 10 miles, and they say break. And I remember this very clearly. Um, we just finished a movement. We were still in the field. It was still, the exercise was still game on. 
and we finished movement and they said, all right, drop packs, take a break. And we just sprawled. We were like, dang, I'm done. Everyone was just at their limit. And our captain walks through and he's like, starts screaming at us. He's like, get up. We're like, why? He's like, if you ever do that, if you ever think that you're done, you'll get murdered. Um, and that has stuck with me. Like every time that I think I'm supposed to be done, I, I, you can't stop. Right. Because as a, in a combat mindset, I'm watching. If I'm fighting an enemy and I see them get to the point that they've just taken a break, that's when you kill them. Interesting. Yeah. I think this, this, uh, <coughs> for some reason this brings up like, I'm like going through my, uh, my Swiss cheese memory of like seeing you in the gym and like, I don't think I've really seen you sprawled on the floor too many times. That's like, actually precisely what I learned from this school. I and like, I see you like walking around with your hands on your hips, just like sitting there breathing and breathing and breathing. Mm-hmm. But interesting. Now it, it's like, it's, it, it's definitely like, uh, like snapping into my head. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever really seen him like flat out on the floor. Maybe one of the open wads. It's happened once or twice. As a principal, I try not to because I don't ever want to get into a, a, uh, it's not a matter of showing weakness. It's a matter of, in my own head, letting myself know that... Compromised position. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, there's, a, um, there's a great gym out in California, Invictus. Uh, th- I, I just learned about this thing that they do out there, which I think is actually f- is pretty awesome because um, what they do is no one's allowed to put their hands on their knees in the middle of a wad or right after a wad or, like, or just completely crumble, like... Like after a workout, like no matter how hard it is, you fight to stand up and be positive about it. Because with if you have your hands on your knees, your head is down. Um, it's kind of like a, a, a almost like a uh, non nonverbal sign of defeat. Yeah. Um. And 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 a little bit of like negativity thrown in there, and that and that's like one thing that that Invictus really really like prides itself on is like a very very positive positive uh, environment. Clearly works because they have a ton of games athletes that come out of that gym. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um. Which is which is awesome, and it's like one as as far as me as a coach. Like hearing stuff like that, like those little tiny things, like mean so much more to me. Like, cause, cause it's like, okay, how do I run my class like like that? How do I how do I gain that positivity? And same thing with you. It's like, it's like not admitting defeat and just standing and keep on going. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, another thing they would in this in the same school. Anytime we're doing a workout. Um, or anything physical, whether it's getting up from the ground with your pack. Anytime anyone made a, a noise, just a, <clears throat> or a, anything that was, that seems self-defeating, they'd be like, hey, no sex noises. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so guilty of that. I can't, I can't get out of my car without making a noise. Honestly. Well, and if it was an aggressive, it was, a, if it was a, <clears throat> like a, I'm, getting the shit done. If yeah. it was one of those, they didn't care. That was like, you're getting your head in the game. Yeah. If it was, and you can tell the difference between someone that's like, just, they're just trying to tell themselves <laughs> that, that, that they deserve some self-pity. Mm. Um, 
yeah, there's there's no room for that. I Dad, like all I can think about is like people in the gym and their noises now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm like now I'm like starting to like pick apart like the 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 noises of people that are like that it's like the self pity noises versus the uh the Gr- like the aggressive grunt. getting shit and done noise. Yeah, yeah. I think I think one of my favorite and we we talk about him so much on the podcast is Robbie. I love it when he gets he gets angry at himself mm-hmm. cuz it's just like it's just like this like it just harnesses his inner ape. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh so you went through you went through these officer training schools, mm-hmm. and then um, where you you said you got stationed in the Pacific. Yes, I got lucky. There were a lot of spots in North Carolina, a lot of spots in a uh, camp called um, Twenty Nine Palms in the Mojave Desert. So Josh went. <laughs> oh, yeah. That sucks. Yeah, yeah one, of, one of the friends is is he he's out there. Mm-hmm. No, he's in Pendleton now, but he went. Oh, he went to Twenty Nine Palms first. He was, he was telling tell us a story about. I think it was it. I forget what the range is called. Range, whatever. Where like he's like literally, you just run five miles and fire live ammunition at things until that's you get someplace, and then you blow it up with small like <laughs> rockets and stuff. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. He's like, yeah, it's awesome the first time you do it, but the hundredth time it sucks. <laughs> so he was an instructor there, I imagine. Uh, I th- no, I think that that's where he went. He's, he's a Navy corpsman. Yeah, but he's a corpsman. Okay, so it sounds like I think I know. There's two or three ranges that fit that bill. Range. 200 410 alpha one of those i think it was 200 okay was where he went, like and he was like but he told me i'm like that sounds like so much fun he's like it's not <laughs> <laughs> i had to decide almost every time we did something like that is this the coolest thing i've ever done or does this suck and i could answer either way like, right i remember um i feel like that's life though you know what i mean like i have that like that mental debate myself all the time like as soon as i switch the mental verbiage in my mind it seems like the whole scenario changes mm-hmm. and you're like oh this sucks so bad i could be like this is awesome and like just just that one word i'm like just changes everything <laughs> my yeah. thighs are burning so well <laughs> <laughs> right exactly exactly well and um one thing that happened <laughs> Is this from working out? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Uh, one thing that happened in my first the, that um, general officers training school is you learn a bit of everything. So there's a machine gun course, there's demolitions, uh, grenades. Uh, halfway through this course, a guy got assigned to my unit who had um, he had been recycled. He something had happened while he was going, and he had to roll back and start over. And his attitude towards everything was. Oh, we're just going to go out there. You're going to pull a handle and a grenade and just throw it and it blows up. What's so cool about that? And everything. There, yeah, everything. <laughs> and there were, time, there were a couple times that actually got to me. I'm like, same old shit. But then I was like, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on. I'm going to load up an automatic 50 caliber machine gun, like lay down covering fire, pick up a grenade, blow stuff up. This is the ama- most amazing thing I've done in my life. <laughs> and it's cold. Like, I, I got the winter class, so we're doing this all. It's cold. It's wet cold in Virginia, so if you focus on that, you're just going to hate your life. When you focus on, I'm blowing stuff up, <laughs> then you're like, then it's, it's amazing. Right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, and any day, any day I get to pull out a 
<laughs> an automatic machine gun and just like just lay lay some fire just <laughs> such a good day oh yeah I know my one of my interns the other day uh, got to shoot a M240 Bravo mm-hmm. and uh man the kid was smiling ear to ear <laughs> I can imagine um so you got stationed where where'd you get stationed uh, it's called Kaneohe Bay uh in Hawaii on Oahu so uh, it's uh, one of the best places to get stationed in a lot of ways. You've got your own little base, and all that's there is one regiment of infantry, uh, an assault company, which is um, amphibious vehicles, and let's see, there's an artillery battery, and three or four helo squadrons. So there's no command structure um, beyond what's needed for those units, so you don't have colonels and generals wandering around. As a lieutenant, you're you have a lot of you're pretty high up there like you've it's i mean it's not a it's not a matter of being a, a, of a pecking order but you can get stuff done you're not worried about stumbling across some major and getting your operation squashed it's a pretty lean base yeah and you get to know most of the guys there too like when i was there any of the other infantry officers we'd know who we, each other were i'd probably have flown with some of the helo guys um probably have called an arty from the battery um in that regard, it was great. Yeah, how long were you stationed there? Uh, three years from beginning to end. Uh, two deployments out of that. And they were the time changed a huge amount. When, we, when I first got there, we were ramped up. The battalion had just come back from Afghanistan, and they'd, it'd been in some, they'd been in some shit. They'd uh, lost, I think, 10 to 15 guys in their last deployment. Okay. And uh, we were getting ready to go. It was like an eight-month turnaround. Basically, they'd come back two months ago, two months earlier, yeah, give or take. Um, the, me and, or the, my five buddies and I dropped in at about that point. And then we were getting ready to go in another five months. So I didn't see Hawaii. Like, I lived outside of base, but our game, our, everything was so, um, so dialed in. So we were getting ready to go fight. The level at which we trained is the level at, which people die. If we train harder, we'll kill them and we won't lose anybody. If we slack off, we're going to get people killed. So the it, it was there was not a waking moment that wasn't dedicated to preparing to fight. It yeah. was well, it was your job, right? Yeah. Um, and there were some things that were done that were could have been considered meh, illegal. <laughs> uh, they've changed the standards of what is quote hazing uh, since then. <laughs> but uh, we had guys like we had sergeants. They would break into rooms at two in the morning, pull the new guys out of bed, and yell at them. Give me your nine line. Uh, give me your fire report. Basically, get them into a point of stress and see if they can call in. A casualty evacuation report or a an immediate uh, fire support request was it necessary if we weren't going to war i would say absolutely not why would you do this to people why are you why are you being mean but when you think if that would prepare them for a real life or death situation do it i don't care if nobody gets killed or if no one if no one gets seriously injured or few people get seriously injured, go for it. Cause it's, a, it's a, what's the, what did they say? A pint of sweat versus a gallon of blood. 
Yeah. So, so es- essentially, they're just like, I mean, the the quote unquote hazing was really just like uh, putting putting in like outside stressors and like getting the person into like a very very stressed situation and having having them just be able to think. That's how it should be, and unfortunately, <laughs> so it was taken to a different level. Well, the laws until about. 09, 08, I forget exactly when it changed. The laws used to state anything of this sort which is intended to demean or demonstrate um, seniority and power is hazing. So if you looked at that and looked at it objectively and said, are they preparing them for war or are they preparing them for, or are they just messing with them and proving you're new, you've got you've to suck through, you've, we've got to prove that we're in charge. Right. If they saw that, it would be hazing. If the same thing happened and you could prove there was a reason for it, even if it were off the books and a little excessive, it's it would be poor judgment, but it wouldn't be a violation. Right. They've changed it now. So that anything if someone told me if if uh someone told me to my face, go screw yourself, one of my Marines, I could not do a thing to him except paperwork. And it is beyond messed up now. Uh, I, I you actually, can't just like like do like a uh, I mean, make them just do a bunch of push-ups or something like that? Nope. That's a violation of military law now. What? That's <laughs> I, I shit you not. <laughs> that goes against every single military movie I've ever seen. Absolutely. Right. And this is a new change. <laughs> um, it's, it's like all I can think of is that stupid Pauly Shore movie, like in the army now. Where he's or, like, or Major Payne. Yeah, he's just constantly <laughs> doing push-ups the whole time. Yes. Um, and... Uh, in boot camp, they still can. Oh, okay. They have strict limits there. They can only do so many push-ups. And I don't know boot camp. I didn't go through the enlisted boot camp. I've never taught there. Um, so I, I can't speak to that uh, in a lot of detail. But they do have some tools there that we can't do in the fleet. Um, actually, the worst scenario I had... In, the discipline that's instilled through boot camp is phenomenal. And uh, as an officer, one thing we're trained in is a, a level of responsibility that... They are trained to do whatever you tell them. You better be doing, you better be leading them phenomenally because they are putting so much trust in you. Only once in my entire career did I have enlisted, one enlisted Marine tell me, he literally said, go F yourself to me. <laughs> and my corporal decked him in the face <laughs> and took him down. And I called the military police to come drag up this pile of crap uh, and to throw him in the brig. And they rolled up, and they arrested my corporal. And I was absolutely furious. I told them, that's not, you don't get it. They're like, no, that's assault. I'm like, no, it's not. That doesn't count. Um, And I eventually got it cleared up through paperwork. But um, people don't learn discipline from paperwork. If you take away part of their pay or restrict their liberty, they know it sucks. But it doesn't get that that instant willing, like, obedience. (laughs) Getting decked in the face, that gets you there. <laughs> What's that quote? Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah, what, did, what did Pete call it in the corporate world? Uh, real, real-time evaluation or whatever. I figured what he said. Uh, real-time performance evaluation. What that is. <laughs> <laughs> you have poor performance now, sir. I'm sorry. Punched in the face. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, so uh, the... You guys prepared for uh, basically going to war and mm-hmm. then got deployed? Yes. Okay. 
You got deployed to Afghanistan? Yep. I was in uh, Helmand Province and at the very southern edge where there's um, people, really. Uh, any farther and it gets into just desert and then some empty desert on the way to the Pakistani border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things had progressed at that point. There was virtually no open combat. I actually, this still annoys me that I trained, we trained so much for war and we get there and it's just shadow games. The enemy plants IEDs. We try not to step on them and uh, unless we find them in the act of planting an IED or actively shooting at us, we can't do anything to them. Yeah. So it was... Uh, that, I mean, that's um, basically rules of engagement, right? Yes. And we had to prove anything to arrest anyone. We had to prove things to a level at least as high as police would have to prove here in the U.S. And then you can't even... If, if you arrest them... It's all corrupt. They know somebody up in the government. They'll get released and go right back to planting IEDs. Yeah, from from everything that I've heard about uh, what's been happening in the military, it sounds like they, I mean, not only in Iraq, but as well as Afghanistan, they learn really, really fast how you can engage mm-hmm. and how to skirt around that so much um, because, because of the ROEs Mm -hmm. and like how frustrating it is to the guys that are like on the front lines. Um, that, that it's, it's like, well, I can't, I can't do anything until you shoot at me or, 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 or they have to get like uh, through the chain of command acceptance. We're like, okay, take them out, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was very frustrating for you guys because you're like, I know that's a scumbag and I want to do something about it, but I can't. Yeah, in fact, there was one case where we had, I, I should avoid names, I don't think it matters at this point, but um, we had aerial imagery of a house, and the, the scanner could pick up that there was HME, homemade explosives, drying on the roof. We knew who that guy was, we knew he was Taliban, and we knew he was planting IEDs, so we planned an operation to go roll up on the house and basically catch him with the explosives on his roof. One of the police we were working with, who we had to inform because we, were, this is, we had to do a coordinated operation, uh, he sees this guy coming through a checkpoint, and I don't think this policeman was corrupt. I think he was just an idiot. <laughs> he tells this villager, we're going to get you. We're coming tonight, and we, we know you've got this explosives. We're going to catch you. So, of course, he just cleans it all up. We roll up. There is nothing there. And we couldn't do a thing. The guy from the time we left months later was probably still cooking HME and planting IEDs. And I sat across from him at village meetings. I, I wanted to pull out my pistol, cap him in the, between the running lights, but that would be murder. <laughs> <laughs> What's that like? Like, like, I mean, a lot of people don't, aren't faced with that kind of, um, hard reality of like sitting across from someone who wants and is actively trying to kill you on a daily basis. Like, what what was that experience like? You know what I mean. Like, it, it would be a lot easier if we actually could fight them, right? And it was very frustrating to be doing what we knew to be a pointless mission, right? And that was the hardest part about it. About halfway through the, the deployment, though, was when I switched mindset from. Right now, things are pretty calm. Is it going to improve the country? No. 
are we going to get many of our own guys killed? Yeah, probably not. All right. Do I really want to start a war? And that was the point when I was when I realized, you know what, the country's going to go back to the same thing. Afghanistan is going to go to the same state it's been in in ten years, no matter what we do. I don't want any of my guys getting killed. Right. I really don't care what happens. Right. And that amount of apathy is actually what got me through, which is uh, pretty messed up. But I basically had to change my attitude from success to just damage control. Right. Well, it, I mean, I don't know if I'd count as apathy because you're kind of thinking of the people that you had to command, you know what I mean, keeping them safe. That's that's a pretty – I mean, to me it sounds like, you know, you're, you're there for a mission, but – part of that mission is keeping everyone you're there with safe. And that's kind of the choice you made too. Mm-hmm. And it, honestly, it wasn't my choice, right. but, um, at least, it at least helped me accept it. Right. So, uh, you got through Afghanistan. I mean, unscathed. Yep. <laughs> obviously. Um, and came back home. Uh, would you, do you come go back to Hawaii mm-hmm. after that? Yep. Uh, I remember. And, so I wasn't actually ever in a direct firefight. I walked through a number of areas that were had some chance of being mined, and I don't know. I still don't know how close I came to stepping on an IED. Probably not that close. My area really wasn't that hot. Yeah. Um, but it's still stressful. Uh, you still hear explosions, and um, you know that there's guys out there planting explosives. So I don't want to overstate the level of... of danger I was in because I hate it when people do that. Guys that were in a gigantic base 20 miles from the action that talk about getting PTSD. Um, I'm nowhere near that. And, um, and plenty, so many people overstate their war record, but it still was a bit stressful. Um, yeah, I mean, like you literally were in a, like, a a country that was like still fighting yeah they're still planting ideas they're still out there you never know i mean it's like um it's like uh from uh, i've heard stories about like the truck drivers in iraq it's like they could be just taking a truck from one place to the next and it's like they never know what's going to happen <laughs> I know, <laughs> and, and and they're just they're not sure it's it like it's like it could be a good day where we just make it and and nobody gets hurt and it could be a bad day where the truck in front of you gets blown up i, I yeah. know a kid that was uh actually did jujitsu and he was uh, i can't remember what branch of the military he was in but he was uh a reserve and then got called to go to iraq and uh i was like oh so what are you gonna be doing he's like oh he's like I'm driving a fuel truck. And I'm like, oh, that, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. And he's like, I'm driving a truck full of fuel where they <laughs> blow stuff up all the time. I was like, oh, that does suck. Like, yeah. he, But that's what he like. He was so stressed out about it before he left. He's like, I got to drive a fuel truck in Iraq. I was mm-hmm. like, Jesus Christ. The, uh, <clears throat> the, the One of my friends who was, who was higher up in the military, he was saying that he's like, truck drivers are like some of the worst. Like, they're the guys that are just, like, constantly seeing, like, they were seeing, like, friends blown up because they have to, by, by military standards, they have to drive, like, on the, right, on, on the set side of the road at the speed limit and all that stuff. And, like, that the insurgents were just, they knew this. Mm-hmm. They knew it all the time, whereas him and his crew were driving down the wrong side of the road 60 miles an hour because they weren't prepared for 
like a fleet of Humvees driving as fast as possible, like through an area, but they were definitely prepared for those trucks going whatever 40 kilometers an hour all in a row, like not breaking formation. So it's, it, yeah. It, it it's it's stressful. It mu- it must be incredibly stressful. To, to be I'm just to going to a foreign a country day. that yeah. is in that kind of volatile state. It's got to be a little stressful. Yeah. You know what I mean? It could be a good day. It could be a bad day. And I really don't envy the the convoy drivers because, uh, in fact, so when when uh, infantry when we do a mounted operation in vehicles, we don't call it a convoy because a convoy's purpose is to deliver something. When we go out in vehicles, our purpose is to kill something. So. Our attitude is entirely different, and both mentally and tangibly, it makes it so much easier because tangibly you have the weapons, the training, the mindset for hunting versus the convoys, which are basically trying to get through without their, their, their prey, and they know it. Um, and I know a lot of people that have trouble with uh, coming back to the U.S., whether it's directly... Uh, combat stress or just the stress of being there is the feeling of powerlessness. And I remember feeling this after 9-11 was just the, uh, we've been attacked, we need, I need to do something. And I was, obvi- I was still a freshman, I was a kid in high school, nothing was, I couldn't do anything at the time. I know plenty, so many people that went straight into the military were, that were like, this is how I can cope with it. And, uh, so, yeah, for me, being able, knowing that whenever we went out on the outside of the wire, we were there, we were going to win. Uh, most of them were, were, we were far more capable than the enemy. That was, right. um, that was quite comforting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after your deployment, like, did you, were you, did you ride it out in Pacific or? Yeah, it was pretty calm after that. I remember... It was nice to kind of to dial back from that. I remember the first day back, I just floated down Waikiki Beach. I uh, we had basically a week off when we got back, so I just went into the water. I think I was just floating for like three hours. Jumped in on one side of the beach and just kind of drifted down the end. It was an, it was a nice. I normally I normally have a bit of a phobia of sharks, but at this point I was just I I, I don't care. I'm just going to chill. <laughs> um, and then, so I was, we were back there for about a year. So I got around Hawaii a whole lot more then. Um, got to know the areas, made some friends there. Uh, then our next deployment was to Okinawa, Japan. Uh, so we trained with a lot of the local militaries. I kicked out there for a month to um, Thailand, a month to Korea for training operations. And there was very low stress. There was no, we knew we weren't, to get put into a combat zone there was right. a little a little concern with north korea when we were actually in south korea but nothing ever we all knew it was very unlikely that anything would actually go hot and i didn't want to at that point north korea is all huge amount of artillery and i don't want to fight artillery just the idea of um shells raining down on you sucks i'd be perfectly happy fighting people face to face but right. Um, the stories I've heard from World War One of just hoping a shell doesn't hit you—that that sucks. I don't want to be there. Right. So you were you were in Japan for a little while. Yep. Uh, Okinawa is like the Hawaii of Japan. Okay. It's still very formal, but it's relaxed. 
Um, so it's a lot of Japanese from the from uh, the mainland go there for vacation. Okay. So I got to experience a bit of the um, of Japan, but not so much of the of the Japan, odd Japan light is what they call it. Yeah, that, that'd be a good way to put it. What <laughs> <laughs> they do? I know some people that like uh, that the same thing. They went to the military and got stationed there, and then ended up just staying there and living there, or whatever. And that's why they because they're like this, there's so many expats that go there and things like that, and people that from other countries that go there on vacation. It's like it's a little, that's what they call it. It's like Japan light. Mm-hmm. Didn't weren't we watching when we were down in Philly? We were watching something. Anthony Bourdain was on was on that island. Can't remember if he went to Okinawa. Cause it, I'm it sure was, he has. It was so. I think it was like there was like this dish that was very very American inspired, but it like had this Japanese flair to it, where it was like this built up thing, and then it was just covered in ketchup. <laughs> um, but it was like you really only find it outside uh, outside the base in Okinawa. Um, I don't know if that like you know about this, but there isn't one that's coming to mind. I know they've adapted some things. They um, they have a uh, curry now, which is sort of Indian. They've got, is it called katsu? It's like deep fried cutlets, which, I mean, anything deep fried that sounds American. <laughs> um, I'm not sure which exactly that one is, but there's there's actually pretty good food out there. Yeah. Well, I love Japanese food as it is. I also love the Japanese period because mm-hmm. they're such weird people. What <laughs> <laughs> Watching Japanese people on holiday, like like uh, on vacation uh, in, in Thailand is probably one of the most amusing things in the world. I can imagine. Like, I remember sitting on a beach and watching like, I think it was like, uh, it was probably like eight to 10 ladies all dressed all the way like i mean like gloves and everything like they had those like green visor poker hats and they're playing the equivalent i mean basically japanese hokey pokey (laughs) in the water like laughing their asses off i'm like but i'm sitting there watching them like this is the weirdest shit i've ever seen like there were there are a ton of japanese people oh no no ring around the rosie that's what it was not the hokey pokey yeah in the water fully dressed (laughs) like you, your people are so weird, and I think it was uh, there was a time there was like this. Uh, I went to a, a volcano down in Indonesia, and there was all these local horse riders, and there like all the Japanese people. I mean, so stereotypical had these huge cameras, and they're like <laughs> arranging these horse riders to roll up this dry riverbed to look like it was like this authentic like raiding party <laughs> and just like yelling Japanese stuff and like trying to coordinate this thing. I, I love the Japanese. They're, they're so weird. I can't quite figure them out because it seems like they're so excited about their samurai past, but they've completely buried the whole thing. It's They're a very, very odd culture yeah. to, to, to say the least. I mean, they were shut off for... Like, I think it was like several. It uh, my history is terrible, uh, or my recollection of history. Everything that I've learned about history is is pretty bad. But um, I, I, to my understanding, they basically like blocked themselves off from any other society for for a very long time. Any kind of Western influence, and then all of a sudden, and that's what kind of like brought brought the downfall of. Um, of like the samurais is is because all of a sudden they opened up their doors and like and the western society started coming in and it became it completely changed the landscape of, of japan and mm-hmm. then it became like then going to like world war Two and and so it's a very very odd culture there's parts of it I'd, i'll never quite understand 
And I, I've talked to a few Japanese people, and they don't seem to understand why it's like that way either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are parts of it I love, though. Um, so we went diving, me, uh, a couple of my roommates and I, uh, in Okinawa. Uh, I bought a little Japanese car. It was, it's like a Nissan Cube if you scaled the whole thing down about half. Um, so I'd bought that there for like two grand and uh, went out diving. Uh, so we went to this popular dive spot. And because we were going in the water, we had to leave our wallets and keys and phones. So we put them all in the door of my car, locked the door or locked the car and went out in the water for a couple of hours and came back out. I'd locked the car. I'd forgotten to close that door with all our wallets, cell phones, keys wide open. Like you could see them anywhere in the parking lot. (laughs) And there were two things that I made. The first thing I noticed was, wow, no one stole our stuff. The second was nobody even bothered to close the door. And I, that impressed me even more because it seemed to th- no one e- would, e- there e- seemed to even think that someone else would steal it, um, and that was that blew my mind. Just how uh, honest they are. All right. <laughs> Jeez. It so was it was weird. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're, they're definitely. Uh, like, I think one of my favorite, like the the very little time I spent in Japan, I I really want want to go back someday was getting on the bus um from the airport to the hotel that i was staying at overnight and like you get on the bus and just very formal very official like guys checking passports and he's just got like the rigid knife hand like clean like crystal white i mean it was like bright white gloves just like checking everybody's passport every single time he has he hits the passport and he's like hey <laughs> <laughs> goes on and the whole bus ride it was a good like 45 minutes like you could hear a mouse fart in that <laughs> bus because it was so quiet. Right. Nobody talked. And like, meanwhile, like me and my girlfriend at the time, like we just spent 21 hours on a plane. We were a little bit loopy and we're like giggling over like some kind of like directions that we found in the bus. But man, they're, and they, they like grow rice in the medians and just, it's, it's like, it's like the same, but slightly askewed. Yeah. I think that's what I gather from it. It was like very, very much the same, but slightly askewed. Yeah, it's. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I try to to understand things in my mind and build a model of like what's going on. I've got about some things that will never happen with the Japanese. <laughs> so uh, you got in the military. Um, you yep. spent some time in the Middle East, not in the military. Yes. Uh, so let's see. I got out after four years uh, in the Marines, and I uh, went to Jordan after that. And it was a mix of different uh, different ideas. So I'd studied Arabic in college, mostly because I figured I was going to go to Iraq and ended up in Afghanistan, where they actually don't speak Arabic. Um, and trying to remember all my thought processes at the time everything seemed to make my decisions made sense at the time (laughs) (laughs) they always do (laughs) they always do (laughs) so let me think all right okay i remember now so i studied engineering in college and part of my reason to go into the marines was to learn um really command and leadership because i expect to be getting into um, right, actually, I am now in engineering business, um, but I wanted those different pieces. And uh, one thing our company does actually also is we support um, charities and church planning around the world. So 
I knew I had the engineering piece, the leadership piece, but the kind of the expeditionary and um, going places um, and supporting our kind of work. That was something I hadn't really focused on. So uh, out in Jordan, my plan was we were opening a branch of our engineering company in Dubai. So I was going to go to Jordan, uh, learn the language, and then be able to support uh, our work and operations in Syria, Iraq, basically everywhere else around the Middle East that's Arabic speaking and hard to get around without English. Right. Um, but business didn't pan out and Syria and Iraq have not calmed down as I expected. Right. And they've actually gone pretty badly the other way. Uh, and honestly, I was starting to lose patience there. It's uh, not this, none of the same things that bothered me in Afghanistan, but it's, it's difficult to deal with there. So after a year, I, I pulled back to the U.S., <clears throat> so what's like day to day life like in in Jordan? Uh, it's in some ways very glitzy and Western. Um, I lived in Amman, the capital, and West Amman is more luxurious than anything in New Hampshire. You've got malls that are extremely expensive, uh, high end, um, and people are very well dressed and rich. And then East Amman is has got parts that are refugee cities and uh, people barely surviving, living in the dirt. And I lived right on the border between the two. Um, it was still comfortable. So I got to see um, both parts out there. And Jordan, compared to the rest of the Middle East, is one of the most normal parts. Right. I was going to say, I know nothing about that country. Yeah, the Gulf has a huge amount of money, and it's ridiculously arrogant. Um they're, so the way that just the Jordanians think about it, um, so this, these aren't my racist ideas, this is, these are their own, <laughs> <laughs> is um, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria have a long history. They've had, like Babylon was there, Lebanon, right. um, old cultures and civilizations, and they've basically gradually um, progressed as a normal society. The Gulf was the backwater of the Middle East, um, the most isolated and cut-off part, until about the 1920s when they went from being herdsmen for the last 2,000 years to herdsmen with a ungodly amount of oil wealth. All right. So they go from... You'll see the, the Gulf Princes went from herding a lot of camels to herding a lot of Lamborghinis. And right. they still have that attitude. They still will drive around with a herd of Lamborghinis. Right. So the Jordanians, the rest of the Middle Easterners, absolutely hate them because they're still they're the most socially conservative, if you put it that way. They keep their women completely um, covered and hidden away. They're absolute bastards to all the people from other countries that come to work for them. Um, and they don't really have any culture. So, And, of course, the Gulfies see the the rest of the Middle East as, oh, those poor bastards just got left behind. Right. So it's, I enjoyed Jordan because it was comfortable. People, all the, almost all the expats were learning Arabic and trying to, um, trying to learn the culture and understand them. And the locals were friendly. Right. Uh, they weren't arrogant. They were happy to talk to you. The Gulfies, um, absolutely no, no interest in, in uh, getting to know anyone who's less rich than them. <laughs> Um, so you started, uh, you started, help start a CrossFit box over there? I did. That wasn't 
part of the original plan. Um, but after a few, first, a few months when business clearly wasn't going to work, um, I can't believe I got suckered into this so easily. I hated CrossFit at that point. Uh, the few people I'd met were so unbelievably arrogant. Um, my roommate at the t- in the Marines, uh, he asked me if I'd done what I knew about athletics. And I told him, oh, I've done track. And he's like, that's so specific. Um, and I said, oh, my coach knew what she was doing. She was a world-class triathlete. She actually raced at Worlds. And he said, but was she an athlete? I'm like, you've seriously lost me, dude. <laughs> so my attitude of CrossFit was they are so absolutely arrogant. <laughs> so my friend, uh, actually, I barely knew this guy. I ran to him at a Starbucks, and we knew he knew the guy, uh, one of the guys I was uh, having coffee with. And he says, hey, you look like you work out. You want to help me start a box? I'm like, absolutely not, never. <laughs> and... Uh, why did I change my mind? I'm trying to remember this now. Um, there were a couple of reasons I changed my mind, but... Um, it, was, it was the girls in shorts, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> you're, you're close to the mark. <laughs> uh, so uh, a couple of months later, he, uh, I uh, told him, actually, hey, it's not, not a bad idea. Um, and went out and got my uh, L1 certification in Dubai and helped him open it. And it was, I'm very glad I did because all my experience with the arrogance of uh, CrossFit before, I didn't see it. My instructors were very um, professional. I was the guy in the back. Whenever they asked a rhetorical question, I was like, um, no, that's, th- that doesn't make sense. Because <laughs> um, I still hated CrossFit when I went to the L1. I just right. had... Um, ulterior motives. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, yeah. So I helped. Uh, they opened up in September. I was there for a few months before before I came back to the U.S. Um, I enjoyed it. There were we were starting from scratch with everybody. People there didn't really have any athletic background, and there is. The Middle East, not just the Muslims, the, all the different people there have a very showy attitude, and I, I kind of like it. Um, anytime there's a graduation or a people have passed their latest math test, they'll go out, shoot AKs off the roof, and celebrate and drive a parade through the city. Right. Um, <laughs> pass their math test. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. Anything is an excuse for a big public celebration. Well, why not? Yeah, and I enjoyed it. It wasn't. It wasn't arrogant. It was because if you, they'd wave at everyone. They were like, hey, come celebrate this, our happiness. Right. Like, let's have a party. Yeah. But, and it was, it was showy. You could, you could say it was, it was cocky, but I liked it. And that was part of the whole culture. So we, people would come in, and at first our attitude was way off. We told people, oh, we're not a bodybuilding gym. We're here to make you fit. And people walked right out. Right. We'd ask people, do you want to look strong or do you want to be strong? And they'd look like at us like we were a bunch of idiots. And they'd be like, I want to look strong. I don't care about how much weight I can lift. <laughs> um, so they, I know since I left, they've changed their materials a bit and uh, are catering a bit more to the uh, to saying, yes, we will make you healthy and fit, but you'll also look good. <laughs> <laughs> 
I remember at one point you told me you said that where it was located um, was it was like you go up the street and you get rich people and you go down the street and it's just it's slums. Oh yeah, I was right on that line. <laughs> that I mean, it, how how I mean, how was the clientele? Was was the clientele for the most part the people from the, up the street? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we were charging CrossFit rates, so. Gotcha. Um, yeah. It was a lot of Circassians, too. Uh, so not just Arabs, but there's a whole Circassian community. Um, they're sort of... Basically, their homeland got taken over by the Russians. Uh, and they're in great shape. Those guys, some of them were really buying into the, the training attitude. A lot of them came from uh, mostly boxing. So they were already in pretty good shape, and they loved it. Huh. Uh, so, I, I mean, I can imagine... Couple people I know starting a box in the United States is hard. You know, just gathering equipment, things like that. What is that like in a foreign country where CrossFit is primarily an American thing? It was a, it was a bit of a tough sell, but we had. So there, there were two co-founders. The guy who wrote me into this, uh, and he partnered with a local, an Iraqi, who opened a number of uh, businesses around the Middle East. So he handled all the. Um, all the lake work, all the logistics. And so he dealt with all the permitting, which is a, takes a lot of finesse in the Middle East. It's not, there's no bribery openly. Um, in fact, it's not bribery, but you have to know the right people and, right. Um, and get on the right side of the right people. So he handled all that. Favors. Uh, yeah. Um, no, not even. It's just the right friends. It's not, oh, okay. it's a different kind of, I wouldn't, it's finicky whether you call it corruption or not, um, because it's all completely open. It's, oh, if you want to do this, you need to make sure it works for my tribe or works for the town. So you need to do some kind of, um, you have to give some money to the right causes or the right things. And it's all open. There's no, like, it's not, hey, I want $1,000 cash for me. Um, so... But it's, it wouldn't quite pass the sniff test here, but they don't think of it as corruption. And I wouldn't quite either. It's, right. It's, they call it a wasta. A wasta? Uh, yeah, it's a term for greasing palms, but not in a, not secretly. It's just, it's open. Right. Gotcha. So he took care of all that. Uh, the tougher sell was what, really what I mentioned the fact that we weren't getting people huge. That wasn't the point. Um, I'm trying to remember the people who did get involved. Uh, where we really had a huge amount of ground, though, is we knew our stuff. Like, I wasn't across from CrossFit background, but I knew track. I knew a lot of endurance sports. So I was the endurance guy. We had The owner was a gymnast. He pulled in one guy who was a baseball player. And an, yeah, actually, another guy who was a baseball player, too. And just from our general typical sports background, we knew far more than any of the clients who were coming. So we could help them with their injuries uh, explain movements. So, and that ground, we were far ahead of even the Britzia sports clubs where there are people there didn't know a thing. Yeah. I find it crazy that there's, I mean, there's CrossFit level ones in, in Dubai. And it was, I mean, this was like, how, how long ago was this? Uh, just two years ago. Oh, just two years. Okay. So it, it was fairly recent. I remember my, my level one, I had a woman from Dubai and like I'm she had zero athletic ability and was dressed in the like all the newest crossfit gear. 
head to toe, lots of gold. <laughs> and and like one thing I specifically remember is that, uh, one of the one of the trainers, one of the uh, instructors, was this Irish guy, and he threatened to slap her ass if she didn't do a <laughs> do a deadlift right. <laughs> a, it was it was like one of the most the funniest yet awkward things in the world. I'm like, I'm like you know, you're not supposed to touch her right. <laughs> You'll get murdered if you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, like her husband probably had more money than he will ever see his entire life, but he he did not care. He's probably one of the funniest dudes I've ever met. Um, I wish I could remember his name, but uh, uh, so that's I mean, like opening a CrossFit box in Jordan. That's that's not an easy task. Um. You just came back to the states not too long ago. Yep. Uh, yeah, straight back here. Okay. And yeah, so after from going from Hawaii, military all over the world, Jordan. Uh, yeah, that was a bit of a a bit of a slowdown in a few ways. Yeah, things are far more stable and normal here. Do you do you do you find that you need to find a little bit of like? something to to get your blood boiling a little bit after you've been like you've been all over the world doing all these things like do you do you find now that i'm just like you're you're getting like a little bit mentally bored absolutely yeah (laughs) and i knew knew that before i came back um so um yeah crossfit is one of the things that keeps me uh engaged it's still not the same yeah it's still not the same level of chaos that i like but it's uh it's something and you work, uh, what's it come? Uh, so. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> we glossed over something here. Go ahead. Canoe racing. Oh, yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was going to circle around back to it at some point. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, one of the, the bomb I dropped, I guess, right before we started, uh, recording. And, um, so when I was back in Hawaii after the, uh, after calming down from the whole war planning and prep for that, uh, I joined a, a Hawaiian canoe racing team. <laughs> <laughs> and it was phenomenal because as a Hawaii has many different layers. There's the tourists which go in and they pretty much see a few square miles of the island that's tourist country, uh, which is great beaches, um, nice food, and they pretty much bus in burn and leave um i the uh sec the stretch i had between deployments i got to know get around the island a bit more like the people that lived there for a few years uh, i knew most of oahu um knew the trails and beaches but there were a lot of parts of the island that are very hostile to anyone white or even half white like me so if you're not born there um, even if you're born there, you're a Howley. Exactly, a Howley. <laughs> Don't want no Howley here. Right. Um, then you're generally not welcome in those parts of the islands. Um, and they're not horrible, but you'll know that you're you're out of place. Right. But my canoe racing team was about half Native Hawaiians, half Howleys like me. <laughs> and this is the only place where they didn't care. Uh, they cared. Would you man up? Would you pull your paddle through the water and not whine? Right. That was it. They judge you on man skills, not like background. So I, deter- I, I resolved I wasn't going to st- say 
a thing. If I knew someone was out of sync or somebody was dragging, even if it was be helpful for me to speak up and say, dude, you need to pick up your pace or you need to bring your paddle a little this way so you don't bother me. I didn't say a thing. I just wanted to gut through it. Not gut through it, but basically get my get credit as just being able to suck it up and paddle. All right. And after a couple of months, not even a couple of months, just a few weeks, like I could go with them to the off off limits parts of the islands. One of our races was actually between islands. It was it's the longest race in Hawaii, from Oahu to Molokai, uh, and that whole island, Molokai, is you. There wouldn't be a reason to go there as a, as an outsider, and you wouldn't want to. They wouldn't like you there. Right. But as a canoe team, um, we went there, um, stayed in some houses with people that our uh, our team knew. So I got to see their whole um, how they all live there and really what how how they do things. And it's very family oriented. I really got to enjoy the Hawaiian people there. It's interesting that it took like an athletic activity to gain acceptance like that. It's yeah. And it was quick too. It wasn't right. even like we're testing you out. It was, yeah, you paddle, you don't complain. Yeah, you're good. Right. <laughs> so they're basically just measuring you up as a man and saying like, okay, you pass. Yeah. Basically. That's awesome. Um, what is a uh, canoe racing? Like, do you use like a reg? like, is it more like rowing crew or is it more like you getting in that fucking canoe you bought at Kittery Trading Post and just paddling as fast as you can? Uh, so it's an outrigger canoe. It's, uh, I was racing six man boats. So it's about, I think it's a 40 foot long boat. What? Uh, it's very <laughs> streamlined and it's got an outrigger on one side. Right. So the outrigger is about a third of the length of the main boat and you've got two, they're called Miyakos, uh, that span out to the, uh, to the outrigger. So as long as you stay, keep your weight balanced, you'll stay, um, you'll stay on the water. If everybody leans to the right, you'll flip. I call it hooli. You don't want a hooli. I actually never did in the whole time I've raced. I never flipped. Um, and they can go pretty quick. So you've got a paddle. Uh, it's, and you always you take... Is it like a canoe? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a canoe, but I mean, your standard American canoe paddle? Uh, yes. So uh, it's fiberglass, actually. So. Oh, okay. Uh, and carbon fiber. So the paddles, it's very light. The boats can be very light, too. Um, and these, these are all canoes that are basically, they're based on canoes that the original Hawaiians um, used to make out of trees, right? Yep. Okay. So there actually is a league that still races uh, with koa wood canoes. Okay. Uh, and they're perfectly effective. Uh, they're still pretty good. So this is like the, um, in fact, I think you pulled a picture of my team there. So that, that shirt looks familiar. No, no, it's just another blue shirt. Never mind. Um, yeah, it's the it's the state sport of Hawaii. Okay. So it's it. They try to keep things. It's not just competitive. In fact, there's a limit. The boats can't be less than four hundred pounds. So it's designed to not just be an arms race of technology, but still uh, respecting the the culture and history of the Hawaiian. That's racing. pretty awesome. That see, the, to me, that that I think that's pretty awesome because in this day and age, like when we're getting into like carbon fiber and different materials and all that stuff, it's almost like people are just. I mean, you're you're eliminating any kind of like human involvement. Like your your human involvement is like becoming such a small part, and like the big part is like how your construction of your whatever object you're racing or something like that mm-hmm. i don't know it makes sense uh that it's like 
they've just like streamlined to the point where um, human involvement is, is at a minimum. I mean, yeah, you're still paddling, but it's just like, well, they're still paddling, but this canoe is shaped so perfectly that like it, it, there's almost zero friction on the water. Yeah, there's a lot. They do a lot to uh, keep things. I don't want to say religious, but traditional. Traditional. Yeah. So there's a lot of rules. So you never step over the outrigger. It's just a matter of respect. They and I, I actually didn't get to the level of of understanding what all the symbols are. But for the big races, you'll put koa leaves on the tail of your uh, on the stern of your canoe. Uh, and it's kind of like a Hawaiian blessing for the boat and the right. race. And uh, the boat, I think either the boat is you're supposed to have like a motherland kind of symbol to it. I don't know these things that well, but I, I do know that there is a lot of um, yeah tradition right. uh, to it. They're very proud, traditional people. Everyone mm-hmm. I know from Hawaii, even like have a, quite a no, not a, quite a few, but like I have some friends from Guam, and it's the same thing. Like th- that whole like they're very proud of their heritage and where they come from, and they kind of they they're the people that I feel like really appreciate and kind of keep that tradition of everything they've done kind of alive for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And even though so, even though it's traditional. Um, what surprised me about here is Hawaiians have a, rep- they get maligned a bit for being slow and, um, yeah, basically being slow and people think that they're not very ambitious or lazy, but in the boat, the Hawaii, the, they take this very seriously. And right. I had no idea when I got into it that this was as much as it's traditional, they don't want to get, have things become tech based. They are extremely aggressive and competitive. Um, there's teams that train every day. That I, in fact, I learned a lot of uh, endurance training because they were looking up the new technology, the new um, training technologies, um, and the big races are aggressive. They uh, there's some that go all day, some where you don't actually swap out crew. So mine, it's you have nine man crew in a six seat boat, so you have a chase boat and you jump in and tag people out, right? Which is really fun, but it's it was extremely, uh, extremely. Uh, competitive. I feel like the thing that I f- about people like the few Hawaiians that I do know is like they're when you've mentioned that whole like kind of stereotypical lazy unambitious it's they pick and choose what they're ambitious about. Like, that's like that's the, true. The stuff that they don't care about they don't really care about at all and then the stuff that they are into it's 100% in. They're, it's so hot and cold they're like all in or not at all. Yeah that would be a good, good way to put it because they're aggressive they're um they take their surfing seriously right. too. and they're fighting like all that because that's how i know people from why is from jujitsu and and the mixed martial arts culture and it's like i mean literally to have one of those guys quit you'd have to fucking put a bullet in them you know what i mean it, it, and even then you're like oh, i don't know you know like they're just they're, but that's what they're passionate about they're all in it that's what they do that's what they do and there's not a whole lot of room for anything else yeah that would make sense and I guess this is things that, like, they're not big on um, advanced education or just the logistics that you go over there and you see why are people driving so slowly? They're driving 500 the speed limit. Right. And that annoys people. And the government there is absolutely abysmal. They can't, um, the, the utilities and things just don't work. Right. So that, that's what people see. They see the things that matter to us. And right. yeah, just assume that the whole place is slow. Right. 
uh, I, uh, I was in an interview with um, Shane Dorian, who's like a famous big wave surfer and a bow hunter and all that stuff. And he was like, yeah, he's like, people come here and, you know, they get behind some guy driving a truck and he's doing five under the speed limit and they fucking honk and beep and pass him and drive off. And next thing you know, the guy in the truck followed him and beat him up for passing him. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, that's the way it is. You know, like on the one hand, I'm driving slower than death chain to a stump, but I'll beat you up if you pass me. You know what I mean? So they like, like I said, it's all, it's either all or nothing with that culture. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Did you get to do like Island hopping, like get to see all the islands or, uh, not as much as I would have liked to. And this is one of the reasons I got out of the military is I planned twice trips to Kauai, which is another island. And one of them was for Memorial Day weekend. And I forget, the other was right before one of my deployments. But things kept getting changed. Um, we got called in to do training over the, I think the Memorial Day weekend, uh, just because our commander wanted to impress some people. So one of the main reasons I got out was just I couldn't control my schedule, my life, really. And so all my trips to Kauai, I had to cancel. I think I canceled them three times just because stuff rolled. Right. And uh, same thing happened in Japan, actually, is um, there was someone in my chain of command at the time who was extremely risk-averse. So he canceled everybody's leave trips we had a four four day weekend for christmas and i planned out a trip to visit a friend in, who had a ski cabin in nagano where, where they had the, i think the 96 or 98 winter olympics um and he canceled it for no reason even though the commander the colonel had said go take trips uh same thing for new year's weekend i was going to visit a family i knew in a uh, british family in japan and see the mainland and same thing. Um, the colonel said supply, submit everything, but this guy scratched it all. Um, so having, having someone who is, who's basically risk averse and in it for the career who can ruin your life and plans. Uh, I had enough of that. Yeah. <clears throat> Understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, so you didn't get to, I, I, I read a book a long time. I was very, uh, I think it's, um, is it Molokai? Yeah, yeah. Did you get to go on that island? That was the one I did the race to. Yeah. Okay, okay. Because that was formerly known as Leper Island. I don't know if you know the history of that, and I was just very interested in it. I get the islands mixed up, to be honest. There's a lot of stories behind. Um, okay, what they were at the time. Because at one point, they like leprosy was so huge that they would just basically send people out there to. To, to kick it <laughs> yeah I, I couldn't believe it hawaii was um there were some rough parts about it before before recently yeah uh, that's another place that has like a, a sort of history that's like incredibly fascinating yes they they had a they talk about the war to um what do they call it unite the king unite the islands and by unite they mean conquer um the local king who conquered the islands did some pretty brutal stuff. Uh, he basically killed off a lot of people. And this was 18, mid-1800s, and um, there were Europeans and American advisors involved, too. It's, as much as it's America, it, is, it was pretty dirty. Yeah. 
And the only reason it's American is because they just needed a station in the Pacific. Yeah. For the most part. <laughs> I think it's funny, like, when anybody that's from Hawaii competes in anything and you have to put your flag next to your name, they always just put the Hawaiian flag. They never <laughs> put the American flag. They're like, fuck that shit. Oh, yeah. They have a lot more pride in being Hawaiian. Right. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is which is kind of interesting, um, is your grandfather used to make uh what what are they called again the uh the piano the the oh organs yeah Just like like a wind up organ essentially right uh actually so it goes a bit farther back it was i think my 6th my great grandmother's great grandfather started a uh pipe organ company in Vermont and it was so they no not pipe organ yes yeah, actually pipe organs reed organs they were, I think, actually the world's biggest um, manufacturer of organs at the time. And the whole thing is completely shut down, I think, from the 30s because, obviously, organs aren't a big market anymore. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I have actually got to visit the, the museum there uh, about a month ago, and it was very... Yeah, I, think, like, I, I saw a video. You posted something on Facebook, and it was like, I kind of knew you like, like as a Marine, like just this interesting cat. And then what really, like, the straw that broke the camel's back is a video of your brother <laughs> sitting there, like, uh, with the crank on the organ, and you're, like, playing the national anthem <laughs> on the organ. It's like, and my, and my great-great-grandfather's, like, like what a museum. Like, well, okay, well, I got to I gotta <laughs> learn the story behind this stuff. Um, so you the, you went to see his uh, his museum or, or the museum of the company? Yes. Uh, actually, I was the one... Cranking the, uh, cranking oh, I the thought organ. I thought it was I was I thought it was you that was playing it. Uh, we look pretty similar, but uh, that was one of my brothers. I oh, do okay. I do play a bit, but uh, uh, I'm actually very rusty. But uh, yeah, I found, I actually didn't know that part of the history because um, there's a whole there's looking back through the infighting of my family or ways back things they've done a lot of things great and a lot of things that just kind of tear things apart. So I, I know my great-grandmother didn't get along with her brother, who was the one who kind of took over the rest of the of the company. But uh, I've been recently, we've been finding out some of the history of uh, people in the family. In fact, my, one of, I think it was my 12th, 12 generations ago, uh, grandmother was killed in the Salem witch trials. <laughs> uh she wasn't a witch, but they they did her in anyway. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I like it. Probably gonna be awkward, but like, but you're um you're basically like culturally descendant <laughs> from where? What is your bloodline? So okay. Like, where 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 is where is the time? Like for excuse me for being frank. Right. But I mean, granted, this is on podcast. Well, I, I, mentioned, I, mentioned, I say way worse things. I mentioned <laughs> half white earlier too, so <laughs> I, I opened the door. Yeah, uh, my dad came directly from India. Okay. But um, he, uh, India is has a whole lot of different pockets, and he grew up actually speaking English. His my grandparents, one of them groups speaking English and the other Portuguese. So they're from a part of, of uh, the country called Goa, which was a Portuguese colony until the 60s when India invaded. So I think my grandfather actually considered himself British, even though he wasn't. He just preferred that um, attitude a whole lot more. 
And um, so my dad grew up English speaking with at, at least a generation or two, more with a European colonial attitude than Indian. And when he went to school, he went to a Catholic school and an extremist Indian government had taken over and were requiring even the Catholic schools to teach Hinduism, Hindu language, basically try to unite the country around Hindu and nationalist principles. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, it pisses people off. (laughs) So, of course, all the Irish monks, when they're told to teach Hinduism, you think they're going to teach it, like, seriously? No. They basically taught... Teach it as mythology. Well, just mythology, but hey, guys, time to learn about how cows are sacred. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) Typical Irish Catholic fashion. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I know all about that. (laughs) So even though my dad's completely racially Indian and um, born there and everything, uh, we have not adapted any of the cultural attitudes, except being doing a lot of math. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so your family established here in the States, obviously, with with a company we don't have to talk about. We don't have to name it, but... um, uh, it is like you're you're from what i understand like you are actually like you have a lot of faith mm-hmm. okay uh and and you i know you've you've talked about going to a, a really really big church in boston which is i mean that's that that's a far drive it's, yeah it's not it's not like your local church you're gonna drive drive to around the corner right um well it's big by new england standards it's a couple thousand people yeah. uh, which is nothing compared to i guess the southern uh southern ones but uh yeah, that's uh, central to um, both my my family, our company, and what I do too. It's and this also connects into why I like exploring so much um, and doing things that are good. Is I love seeing the the so the basic principle of my faith is that God created everything good and not just not narrow, but expanding and with people filling the world and creating things in with their own imagination in accordance with kind of God's big plan. And obviously that things uh, are fallen and that through, that there's a way to um, through God's grace to resolve things and come back to bring things as they should be. So that I like to explore and see all the different, facets of creation and find things that are good so that's that's the the big picture there awesome i mean it's a good way to really i mean great way to look at things i mean uh so you are have or will be doing missionary work um so that particular term gets some some bad rap <laughs> um, because it's associated with um, a history of come to our come to our mission we'll teach you English we'll teach you to be American and Christian and a, a lot of people through our history have done phenomenal things but it gets rolled in together with colonialism and imperialism and it rubs people the wrong way for both for some good and some bad reasons. Yeah. Um, so, 
one thing I foc- we f- um, I focus on is finding what is effective in a cult. What is what? It, what about culture is the inherent parts of it, and which are the messed up parts about it, and and separating the two. So, in for example, well, so I've been to Afghanistan a lot. There's parts that are horrible. There's a lot of um, pedophilia and stuff with dudes and goats and <laughs> you understand that part that's not the that's not the inherent part of the culture there's parts and honestly Afghanistan you'd have to dig a very very far long way down at least where I was to get to the parts that are good um, but uh, and other places is much easier of course but finding what is the what is the part of the culture that is the way that's it's supposed to be and God intended it to be. And what are the areas that need to be basically, um, refute, not refuted, but, uh, forsaken basically. Okay. So I, I've enjoyed that exploration. Okay. Places. Do you have any plans to go anywhere soon? Um, or in the near future? Mm, I don't have any plans. Um, I would, yeah, I'm actually quite, uh, open. I speak. Uh, I've spent a bit of time studying Spanish and, and Arabic, and dabbled in a couple other things. But uh, it's really dependent on what business can do. Yeah. Um, so, the, sorry, Bird just hit the window right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Squirrel. Um, uh, Okay, but yeah, so I'm committed to working through uh, our company, and it's not sensitive. It's it's at TurboCam. Okay. Um, so when we're so we're manufacturing, so I can't just go anywhere. I can't just be like, all right, I'm gonna, I want to start a factory in Chile. Can't just go and do it. It's got to be um, stable. Yeah. Not Middle East. <laughs> uh, probably not at this point. <laughs> um. Cool. So, like, no, no, no plans. No, nothing next for 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 James. I certainly hope so. I get I get bored if things are too calm. <laughs> you, I mean, you had a good stretch. Yeah, and you got to stir some stuff up. Yeah, and it's not just the chaos, but it's the level of challenge and expectations. And I've I've listened to a few of the podcasts, and you've talked about, I mean, obviously the idea of iron sharpening iron right. and being in communities that are, um challenging and where people rise to the expectations right um, so obviously in the marines things are standards particularly when we were in a wartime attitude were extremely high not just both physically discipline um duty all of the all of the above um being part of a sports team you egg each other on in those aspects um and yeah having a kind of a frontier of us against the world or us against the rest of the trying to win the Olympics or win right. your sport. I love being somewhere that's that um, belligerent, I guess. Right. Uh, so that's something I, I'll be honest, I'm kind of missing. Right. I, I mean, talk about this shit all the time, but I mean, I think you should come try some jujitsu. Everything you've said so far, I'm like, man, you'd fit right in over there. You <laughs> know what I mean? I think it's, it's enough chaos on for that short amount of time that it would probably curb some of that, you know, longing for that, but also 
fits into the schedule of having to do all your everyday life stuff. You know what I mean? You get that that hour and a half of just, you know, I mean, literally just teaching or, or fostering that belligerentness. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. It's one of the things to talk about, and you've mentioned it more eloquently than I'm going to mention it right now. But that's one of the things I tell those guys, like, oh well. You know, this is happening, and I don't know how to do about this. I'm like, you just got to develop a little bit of that fuck you attitude. Absolutely. Like, like, fuck you, you're not doing that to me. Or, fuck you, you're not going to stop me from doing that. You know what I mean? And I feel like in the military, you know, that's something that's a, a kind of evident, and that's kind of something that you've, you've, like I said, mentioned more eloquently than that. Um, Jared, this guy I know who's, you know, this amazing jiu-jitsu practitioner and, and coach, he, his whole thing is he, he just says, don't accept don't like whatever the situation is don't accept it. don't accept failure don't accept a loss don't accept that guy telling you you're not gonna win you know what i mean and i'm, I'm more like i'm that neanderthal it's like fuck you not today you know yeah what I mean? not gonna happen to me right so i mean for everything you've said i feel like it i i think it would be a shame if you didn't come try some jujitsu anyway it sounds like a you know what uh, i mean it sounds like a good idea and any anytime you want to stop by the academy you know you're more than welcome we'd love to have you and, and try it out and see if you like it but i mean I think that that I, if that's what's next. I think that you should try. I think that'd be uh, that sounds like a good. Yeah, I like the thinking there because once you're fighting somebody, right? Yeah, there's no like, yeah, I guess I'll just kind of slide through the workout. Like right. it's yeah, it's, it's gonna be game on. <laughs> right, exactly. That's like <laughs> one of the things I tried to explain to Scott about the workout, especially when you first when you start jujitsu because you're not controlling the pace it's like getting on an assault bike and have someone else pedal for you and you just have to keep up huh. that's kind of what like the workout is like and you have to resolve yourself to the fact that you're not in control anymore and you're just kind of going along for the ride and then you learn ways to actually then be in control so like that's kind of why i started crossfit because i found myself that i was always the one because i got so much better than everybody else or for whatever reason i was dictating the pace so it almost got physically easy you know what I mean? And I was I was lacking that workout, and that's kind of why I started CrossFit. But when I mean Scott can attest to this, when you first start, it's like it's one it's one of the most brutal workouts ever. Not it's, to mention this guy's trying to either break your arm or choke <laughs> you unconscious. So <laughs> there, there was a there was a moment. There's definitely a moment yesterday where you were tying your belt. We were, we were rolling, and everybody else in the wor- uh, room was working. And I'm like looking around the room. I'm like I'm like I can tell who's a white belt and who's not in this room solely based upon how much they're sweating right and it's like me i'm dumping sweat because <laughs> i'm 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 a big white belt and but everybody else is i mean like i've seen like purple belts and they're just they're not even not even a, a glisten on their forehead or breathing heavy or breathing heavy breathing heavy as you can tell how advanced you are yeah, mm-hmm. just because they've got their they're efficient and right. know when they can serve. Yeah, and they know when they can rest and they know when they can go hard and you know and that yeah they're really efficient with their movements. Yeah, I mean I'm 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 getting much much better at the lack of physical aspect, but like like I rolled with a white belt uh, who is like very very green, and it took a lot of physical strength for me to just and and only because he was exerting so much physical strength right. that I had to control his physical strength with, with, with my own because my technique wasn't quite there. But, uh, but yeah, you, it's, uh, it's intense and I highly recommend it. Everything you've mentioned today, you've talked about it just, I think you'd fit right in there and you'd really enjoy it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll come by and come drink, sure. get, get beat, drink up the punch. <laughs> you gotta drink the punch. All right. Well, thank you again.
for listening to Sharp Iron Society. Uh, thank you, James, for coming on. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Getting I've, to know you a little bit more. <laughs> uh, I've, I've enjoyed kind of running through things in my head, too, of like, well, yeah, what, that, I was excited about that kind of stuff. That's, All right. that's what gets me excited. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thanks, Derek. Thanks.